Well, please uh, find the book of Revelation, the last page of your Bible. Apart from the maps at the end, find the book of Revelation 22. And my title of tonight, and finally, has no great wisdom about it, just obvious, isn't it? You couldn't be more final than these final words of the final book of the most important final word of God to men. I believe it's part of providence of God that Revelation comes at the end for verses 18 to 21, which in a sense are to do with Revelation itself, would be a fitting climax to the whole of Scripture. Unless anybody doubts this, let me point out that we're not only looking at the final words of Scripture, it is God's final word to us all. Oh, of course, God still speaks. He speaks through preachers sometimes, thankfully. He speaks through our conscience. He speaks through circumstance. But always the authority is God's word. It's to that we return for the assurance that God has spoken. 52 years ago, I was ordained in Liverpool Cathedral. I was handed a Bible, and the Bishop of Liverpool said to me, take authority to preach. Uh, Not his authority, though mostly one respected that, but it was the authority of Scripture. This is my authority then, was then, and still is. And finally. So with these verses, we're going to look at what God may want to say to us on this Last act of worship, unless you find a watch night service somewhere tomorrow. This, for most of us, will be the last act of worship of 2007. Uh, We've just come back from visiting our family, half of our family down in Essex. The other half of our family from Bradford are here. Nice to have them. But uh, we were away with our Essex family. And uh, we went through the marathon Christmas present opening. You must all have gone through it. Uh, One can sleep quite a bit and still the things going on when you wake up. It's uh, quite an occasion. The marathon. And you think we've got to the end. Surely yet another present is found. And we dive under the tree and find another. And finally, we got there. The last one comes out. And I was reminded when I was uh, pondering at looking over my sermon, having prepared it before I went down, uh, I was reminded the last time we were down in Essex for Christmas was three years ago. And uh, I had, like a good boy, I was again preaching uh, same time of the other. The clergy all go home after Christmas, so they're glad of the old guard to come back. And, and I was doing the same thing uh, three years ago. And uh, I prepared my sermon, and it was all about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and it was all ready, and on Boxing Day morning three years ago, yes, the tsunami happened. I woke up to hear the news, and I knew I'd got to do something about my sermon. After all, people are all thinking about that awesome event. And I turned back to Jeremiah 31, all about the new covenant the text I was going to preach, and I thought, well, I can't go on with that until I discover it. Do you know what comes in Jeremiah 31? The the God who promises the new covenant says, it says this about him, Jeremiah 31, 34. This is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, that's all very pleasant, who stirs up the sea so that its waves Roar. Tsunami? In Jeremiah? Of course. God is sovereign. I was able to adapt the sermon and to talk about God's sovereignty. So this year I came back thinking, well, at least uh, this year uh, my sermon's all straight, nothing dramatic going to happen in the world. I should have known better. Benazir Bhutto was uh, assassinated. She was at university with our daughter. Uh, that's not important, but it is important that in the awesome event, of the world. Yet another reminder that as we move into a new year, we move into a new year with all kinds of things 
concerning us if we're genuine believers. What is God trying to say to us? I just thought that in fact my opening line that I'd written in my sermon notes was, isn't it lovely that the place where the tsunami happened three years ago, they played a test match. Sadly, we lost, but nonetheless, it was, no, we didn't, we drew, but uh, 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 you know, it was a reminder that good things were happening, and yet this other event to remind us of where we are. And we moved to year 2008, which is a leap year, which means little to most of us nowadays, but it is also a year of great significance in the Anglican Communion, where there'll be one Lambeth Conference, or two, or three, goodness only knows, and when we as a diocese get a new bishop, we have to decide what we sort of bishop we want to pray earnestly these are important days in which we live and therefore this chapter 27 of Revelation came home to me with tremendous power I hope it comes across to you with some significance it is full of exciting disorder I love the book of the Revelation because it isn't easily put into neat categories for example will you look at verse 17 you tell me, well, don't, please don't literally tell me, but will you, in your mind, tell me who is asking whom to come in verse 17? The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Well, I know who the Spirit is, and I know who the Bride is. That's the church. Who are they asking to come? Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes. But then you notice, let him who hears say, come, and whoever is thirsty, let him come. Now, you'll have, the mind gets boggled, doesn't it, all that, the coming. It is on one hand saying to Jesus, Amen, come Lord Jesus, but it's also saying to a world, come. And as we go through these verses, I hope the challenge will come to us. Can we say, Amen, come Lord Jesus, with a clear conscience? And what are we doing to go out to say to a tremendous world of need, come. Advent has gone, the Christmas has gone, the Advent candles are put away, uh, the Advent uh, calendars are done with, and yet we still say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. That was an, a phrase of the early church in 1 Corinthians 16, they put the Aramaic of the phrase. It was a, a password. You said it to show you were a Christian in that, in that age. And the word was Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. When I was a younger man, we used to go to these Christian holiday places, for, uh, and they always had the names of the rooms always had pious biblical names over. it was all part of the procedure we were a pious lot in those days and there was always, there was always one called Maranatha I had no idea what it meant in those days but I, we always had a Maranatha what I do remember, I have to be careful here it was before I met Margaret I, I do remember that one or two of us rather fancied a girl who was living in the, a room called Galilee and uh, there was then a hymn we sang called The Strange of Galilee. I always remember that one. And so when it came to a choice of hymns, we always asked for The Strange of Galilee for all the wrong motives. May I be forgiven? I wasn't converted then, so there you are. Things have improved since. But Maranatha was a name on, on the door. Come, Lord Jesus. And as we move forward into a new year, we're Christians, or we worship as a Christian people. If we are, then we believe that time has meaning. It's not the endless cycle of seasons. It's not that we're just moving into spring again and summer again and winter again. I was talking to a gentleman who was well over 90 the other day and he commented to me, wasn't it nice that we were, we'd just passed the shortest day? Now, you would think when you get to the mid-90s you just want to cherish every single day you've got left. But he was sort of glad we were moving away into a, a, another season. But because Christ came... And because he will come, 
There are two fixed points in time. So we move from one to the other. We are going places, whether we like it or not. Etched in my memory still, one of the first funeral services I ever took as a young man in his mid-twenties, he was a young fellow in his late teens, and he was a, a lovely believer, um, but he died very sadly, very tragically. He'd chosen his hymns, and he chose an old, fa- well, it's old-fashioned now, it was old-fashioned then, I think, Forever with the Lord, amen, so let it be. It talks about nightly pitch my moving tent, a day's march nearer home. And because it was a teenager who'd chosen that hymn, I was deeply moved. How can you possibly sing at a funeral service of a young man, a day's march nearer home? Well, you do, if you believe God is sovereign of time, and that we are, he was, no doubt, a day's march nearer home. Now, in these last verses, with that in mind, there are two great themes that run together. One is the final authority of God's word. That keeps on coming. The other is the final act of God's work. God's word, God's work. Now, please remember, I hope you believe this, that everything depends upon the first. The final authority of God's word If you believe that, then you can believe the other. You see, we we tend to assume that of course we believe in forgiveness. We believe in grace. We believe we shall reach heaven because of God's mercy. How do you know? It's not instinct in most people. Most people kind of think we'll get there if we do well enough. Well, the Bible says differently. It all depends upon God's word being authoritative. How do you know that Jesus Christ will come again? How do you know he came the first time? How do you know he died on a cross for our sins? How do you know he rose again? Well, simply because the Bible says so. Destroy that authority and you've nothing left. And so without any apology, we move into a new year. This pulpit, guided by the authority of God's word and the final act of God's work. So let's look at those two things briefly tonight. The final authority of God's word. It was Jesus who said in Mark 1331, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. Isn't that audacious? How can anybody with a sane mind believe that Jesus did not claim to be the Son of God? What on earth does an unbeliever make of Jesus? What madman ever says, the whole world will go, there will be global warming, there will be climate change, there will be an upheaval, there will be something that will destroy this universe, and it will. But what I've got to say will be there forever. What audacious nonsense if you're not the Son of God. But if you are, then we listen. And we listen to God's Word as being final and authoritative. Jesus said it. Many years ago, before the Islamic movement became so ominous, I met a young girl who'd been converted from Islam to Christianity at a student gathering. And I've been speaking on the authority of Scripture. And she came to me and said, do you know, I've got a problem. When I was a Muslim, I believed in the word, the Koran, word for word. Every word was sacred. I become a Christian, and therefore the Bible is even more important. But I hear, you, I hear some preachers in the church denying the Bible. Uh, uh, friends, if you're living in the fool's paradise that thinks that everybody in this diocese wants a, a bishop who will love the Bible, you need to start thinking again. 
I'm amazed at the way some people just assume that every Anglican wants a Bible-loving bishop. Please rid yourself of that fallacy. There are many people, that's the last thing in the world they want the new man to be. Because, you see, there is a strong attack on the Word of God always. And we need to be reminded that there are preachers who deny the Word of God. So this, this Muslim converted student was grateful that I take the Word of God seriously, as Jesus did. Three things about that word. First, it's a word to be trusted. That's there in verse 6. It's a phrase that keeps coming in Revelation. These words are trustworthy and true. And how do I know they're trustworthy and true? There in verse 6. Because the God has said them. Please note the communications. God has sent them. His angel is, sent, is passing it on. His servants have got the message. And his servants pass it on in Scripture to me. And I pass it on to you. You see how that line goes on? When I was preaching in Romania a few weeks ago, by interpretation, we had great fun when I tried to use an illustration. Be careful of illustrations when preaching by interpretation. Some of you heard my illustration before. The time when I preached the biggest congregation in my life history, 120,000 people in South India. And, uh, you know, I had to preach. You couldn't even see the back of the audience. And uh, in the old days, the only way they did it before they had microphones was the preacher preached two sentences... A man of the third of the way back picked to what he thought he'd said and preached to a man two-thirds of the way back who picked to what he thought he'd said and preached to the back. And when he got to the back, they waved a red flag and the preacher at the front started all over again. And, uh, well, I tried that illustration and it didn't kind of work in Romanian. And when, actually, the service came alight out at that moment. So the congregation joined in. They tried to help the interpreter. And we had great fun. Nobody quite understood what it was about, but it was great fun. The congregation woke up. They, they were trying to explain what Chinese whispers meant. But you see, we haven't got that problem, do we? We have, in our hands, the word that God spoke originally, and it's because it is his word, we can trust it. 2 Timothy 3.16. For those who've been to 11 o'clock service, Kay's been teaching it down the, down the weeks. All scripts inspired by God. And it's because it's God-breathed that we believe it. Authority depends on authorship. It's a word be trusted. And indeed, John, if you see in the scripture, John is so excited that in verse 8, he tried to worship the angel. The angel said, oh no, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with your brothers, the prophets, and all who keep the words of this book. That's the mark of a true man or woman of God. We keep the words of this book. A word to be trusted. Secondly, a word to be obeyed. That comes out in verse 7. The promise of Jesus coming back again. I'm coming soon. Here's the sixth beatitude. Everything happens in sevens in the book of the Revelation. There are seven beatitudes. There are seven letters. There are seven churches. And seven beatitudes. This is number six. You find number seven in verse 14. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. It's a word to be obeyed. And lest you miss it, just glanced at verse 18 and 19 and I tread terribly carefully here. These words are some of the most solemn words in Scripture. Please note, if you add to the words of this book, if you say, well, yes, Scripture's all right, but there's lots of other things we've learned in tradition and the history. You see, we know better now. We add, well, see what the Bible says? God will add the plagues. Verse 19, 
if I take away what Scripture says, then God will take away my blessing in the holy city. We'll come back to it in a minute briefly, but I want to push it home. In verse 15, there are lists of people who are outside when the final day comes. If, and I assure you this is happening throughout the world church, the challenge of the moment, if I suggest that what the Bible condemns as being held deserving, if I suggest it is all right, that sexual perversion and homosexual activity is all right, and the scripture condemns it, I am in a very serious spiritual moral state. It isn't just a matter of two ideas. I am actually saying that that which condemns a man unless there is repentance to hell, if I am saying that therefore it is all right, I shall stand in the day of judgment and render an account of how dare you. A word to be obeyed. It is actually that, that makes life meaningful and happy. That's why I read it, Isaiah chapter 11, partly why I read it, of all the wonders of the holy city. But it's going to be the holy city. It's a word to be obeyed. And be careful lest I add or subtract. Third, it's a word to be heard. There's verse 17. And the different comes. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And you see at the end, whoever's thirsty, let him come. It's the word that Jesus used to the woman at the well when he spoke to the woman at the well to come and there be a well of water springing up into eternal life in her. John chapter 7. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, once I believe those words to be true, I want them to be heard. And what a great pledge to 2008 that I commit myself to be involved in what this church and other groups do to get that message out to a needy world. I've always been challenged by those rhetorical questions in Romans 10. How shall they hear? How shall they believe on the one of whom they've never heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? And I wonder whether, for some of us, it's a new challenge to take out that word that needs to be heard desperately in our needy world in 2008. The final authority of God's word. Secondly, the other point is the final act of God's work. God's word links in with God's work. The words of Jesus did things. The works of Jesus said things. And here we get a reminder of grace. Just let's go to the tragedy and the triumph. The tragedy is fairly obvious. One day, time is up. Now, those of us who uh, watch football, I'm not feeling very happy today. I gather we lost yet again today, Sheffield Wednesday. And since United also lost, we're all feeling miserable today. Uh, uh, So there you are. Enjoy your misery. There may be happy people around. you, may be a whole city supporter or something. Anyway, most of us aren't. But if if you follow football at all, and your team happens to be winning, and it's extra time, all... Uh, the, the, the audience, all the fans start whistling like mad hoping the referee will get the message and blow the whistle. He wants the whistle to go quickly. Should you happen to be, uh, uh, if you're winning that's what you, you want to stop the game. If you're losing you hope it's gone forever. There's one difference about uh, Hillsborough. Most teams if you're winning one nothing, uh, you blow the whistle because you want it to happen quickly. 
At Hillsborough, if we're winning 3 nothing, we blow the whistle, we, we'll start, because we're, anything can happen at Hillsborough, you never know. Three goals can come in very quickly. But you understand there's a moment when the referee will blow the final whistle, when it's too late. I seem to remember one epic game, which is down the annals of football, where somebody kicked the ball, and while the ball was moving from his foot to the goal, uh, the referee blew the whistle, and the ball actually went into the net. You can imagine the referee was extremely popular uh, with the crowd when that, when that had happened. But the referee's whistle says, oh, there is a day coming when the last whistle will be blown. At this moment in time, we make the decisions, then God makes the decision. Will you notice in verse 12, my reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. There's an intriguing balance. It's all of God's grace, but our faith is to be seen in the way in which we live. He will give his reward according to what we've done. That is, we've demonstrated that faith is real by the way we have lived. But you see, we make a choice. Which way? Jesus talked about two roads. You see, the world likes the idea of there being one road. That is, we're all going to get there at the end. They're quite happy about three or four or five roads. You can choose your road, whatever religion you have, whatever thing you believe, we all get there at the end. Two roads, either or, one or the other, one to heaven, one to hell. Oh, those aren't the words of some fanatical preacher, they're the words of Jesus, the most loving man who ever lived. Loved so much, he told us the story as it was. He told it true. And there was one man who said to Jesus in Luke chapter 13, are there few that are going to be saved? And Jesus said, you make sure you're there. It's not working about everybody else. You make sure you're there. I'm always intrigued when people come to you and say, come on, what about those who've never heard? And I say, wait a minute, have you heard? Yes. Well, have you sorted yourself out first? Let God sort out the other problem. Don't duck behind theological questions. The tragedy is there in verse 8. There are those outside. And in case you think that's just one verse, chapter 21, verse 8, there's a long list there of those who are outside. Chapter 21, verse 27, the only ones inside of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. One of the intriguing things, in the, in the liturgy for uh, funeral services, in the modern liturgy in the Church of England, one of the passages is Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 7. And if you, look at, if you, have, if you flick back a, a page, uh, it ends beautifully. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And we say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But actually, there's a verse 8. There was a godly man in this congregation who left me a note in his will. When you have the service, Philip, I want Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. And the vicar was very happy to fulfill this man's request because he wanted the congregation to know there were two destinies. We sell people short if we give the suggestion that everybody gets to heaven because the Bible's quite clear it doesn't. And that solemn note about those who are outside Oh, incidentally, it includes at the end of verse 15 those who practice falsehood. In chapter 21, verse 8, it includes the cowardly. It's not just sexually immoral and murderers. There is an outside. Can I spell it very clearly to you? 
Of course, please, nothing I've said denies the work of God's grace. For somewhere along the line, we're all there. Unless we've repented, that's where we are. It is, heaven is there for those who are sinners who repent. It is for all who come to the place of acknowledgement of God, their own sin and God's grace. It's not a recipe that some people don't deserve heaven. Nobody deserves heaven. But there is an outside. That's the tragedy. If you look back to verse 11, there's an intriguing little reference to what heaven and hell are like. Let him who does wrong go on doing wrong. Let him who is vile go on being vile. Let him who is righteous go on being righteous. That is, we continue, unless we repent and change, we go on the way we've set ourselves. In one sense, we send ourselves to hell. God, as it were, just says, that's it. That's the way you've chosen the tragedy. Well, I want to finish on the triumph because I'm much happier finishing on the triumph. The final beatitude is verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. These are the ones who are, at the end of chapter 21, written in the Lamb's book of life. I've never, I haven't yet mastered... Uh, the internet. It's a kind of mystery. I get to the word Google and I get very nervous when I get to the word Google. I haven't mastered it, but um, the person who taught me internet did suggest how I, how I learn it was I should put my name in and see what I find. Now, I, I felt very, well, what's the point in putting my name? Anyway, after Google, I put in Philip Hacking. Now, I, I said this not to prove anything at all. To my great surprise, there were hundreds and hundreds of references to Philip Hacking on the internet. Now, granted, there were one or two rogue Philip Hackings. Who I, never, I don't know who they were. They weren't me, but there were just one or two. But most of them were, I have to say, with due humility on this 2007, December 30th, most of them were me. I really was. Oh, don't get excited. It was normally I was going to preach to somebody or I was, uh, somebody quoted from a book I'd written, either agreeing or disagreeing, but my name was there. Anyway, why do I tell you that? Just to say, that doesn't serve any use for me when it comes to facing the Almighty on the final day of judgment. I can't say... I did have my name on the internet 967 times, whatever it was. No. Foolish boy. But you see, it is a reminder, isn't it, that we all too easily want to think that we actually do get there because we're decent people. And I want to remind it on this hour that I'm only there because I've washed my robes and I have, in verse 14, a right to the tree of life. And I can go through the gates into the city and I shall. And we know we've, some have lost loved ones who are believed to have gone through the gates into that city and some who will. Will you? Can you say tonight, I'm ready. When that day comes, finally, when the final whistle is blown, I shall go. In Paul's language, in, in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, it's a lovely picture, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14, it says that thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. Takes us in. You know what the picture is in Paul's mind? When the Roman general went out and defeated his enemy, he came back and there was a great ticker tape welcome back into Rome. And everybody rejoiced and he dragged with him all the generals he'd taken captive. And when Paul says, I'll be in the triumph procession, not that he's won the triumph. He's just 
a captive in the triumph procession. May I be allowed one just last, one last football reference. I have to occasionally remind you of these things. There was a day once when Sheffield Wednesday beat Manchester United in a cup tie. So long ago, most have forgotten, but I remember it well and vividly. And when the Sheffield Wednesday team came back, they had the open top bus and everybody was there to welcome them. The only thing missing, they should have been able to drag the Manchester United team in their triumph procession. That would have been marvellous, but we weren't allowed to do that. We are a civilised society. But that's the picture that Paul has. That all he happens to be is the one who's actually been captured by Christ. It's a lovely picture. And then you see, because that's the day of triumph, you get the wonderful promise, verse 13, that the Lord Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Incidentally, exactly the same words that come in the beginning of Revelation about God the Father. Clear claims that he and God, Father and Son are one. And that lovely picture in verse 16, the root and the offspring of David. All that Christmas had rejoiced in, our first lesson spoke of it. The bright morning star, that's the joy. We are moving towards the door. And the book ends as it began, with grace. Just look at verse 21. After we say, Amen, come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be literally with you all. It doesn't say with God's people, simply with you all. We never go alone. Bishop J.C. Ryle, a very great Anglican bishop of bygone era, had the lovely phrase in one of his books, J.C. Ryle said, no converted person is happy to go to heaven alone. It's all our job to want to bring others with us, and we don't go alone, thank God. There's a great community of the people of God, and all there because of God's grace. I don't know about you, as I finish, I often want to say, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And when I see some of the events happening in our world, and I think of all the implications of them, when I agonize about the church, I hope you realize we are, we've reached very, very serious days in the history of the church. When you realize that, I just want to say, please, Lord, come and sort it out. Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Well, he'll come in his sovereign time. But I do know this, that the last word is going to be the word of grace. When I was a little lad, and... Christmas presents, you all know, we oldies tell you what, how few presents we got when we were lads. But I remember one book, one thing I got, I got an autograph album. This was a great treat. It was one of my most expensive presents I ever got, an autograph album. And I remember I stood outside the turnstiles of Ewood Park, Blackman Rovers, with my little book. And I had it, I kept it for years. First item was written by a man called Tommy Lawton. Played for Everton uh, International. It was September the 2nd, 1939. I remember it very well because I only played one game that season. September the 3rd, war broke out and that was the only game, the only autograph I got of that season. But I do remember it was a trick of all of us. When we uh, had an autograph, we always liked to be the first or the last to sign. There was some little phrase like, by hook or by crook, I'll be the last in this book or the first in this book. Well, not by hook or by crook, but by the grace of God. He is the first. He will be the last in world history. In my life, it all began when I committed my life to him, the first. And he'll be there to the end and beyond. 
And finally, when we sing our closing hymn, which I'll introduce in a moment, we sing with a lovely, we end with a lovely phrase that I always sing with deep meaning. Self on the cross, Christ on the throne. And sadly for many people, it's the other way around, it's Christ on the cross and self on the throne. May God help us as we move from one year to the next. Lord, for the years. Help us to be in a triumph procession and not to be one of God's tragic people who've missed out. Let's pray.